You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Pekah, who is going to rebel against Assyria by assassinating the king of Israel. Uh, the king is Pekahiah. He's an Assyrian vassal, and uh, we can expect the Assyrians to come back uh, in reprisals because of this assassination. Uh, he's going to join Aram. Now, remember where Aram is. This is the northern country up north of the Galilee. So Pekah is going to join Aram to kind of form a double uh, coalition to face off the Assyrians who they know is coming. And they're going to try to get Ahaz of Judah to join them. Now, we know about this mostly from the book of Isaiah chapter 7 rather than the book of 2 Kings. But when you get to the book of Isaiah and you get working through chapter 7, you're going to find that Ahaz in Judah is feeling the sting of this effort to get him to join uh, the northern Israelites and the Arameans in facing off the Assyrians. He doesn't want to do that. Isaiah is going to warn him and say, if you will trust in the Lord and not trust in the gods of the Canaanites or whatever, if you'll trust in the Lord, the Lord will spare you from this difficulty you find yourself in. Ahaz, on the other hand, is very, uh, even though he's anti-Israel, uh, anti anti-Aram, he is very much entranced with Assyria, and he's going to invite Tiglath-Pileser to be his suzerain. It's a little bit like inviting the weasel into the hen house. Um, and so Judah is now going to become a vassal of Assyria. So that's a real step in Assyria's favor. Uh, Tiglath-Pileser is then going to attack Aram and Israel viciously. He's going to wipe out Aram altogether. He's going to put uh, the northern Israelite nation back into a vassal status and install his own king, 
uh, sort of under him, a puppet king, if you will, over the northern nation, and that will be Hosea. So this is going to, to be the sort of the beginning of the end for the northern Israelites. Tiglath-Pileser, by the way, if you're reading an older English version, he's going to be called Paul, P-U-L. That's a throne name, and we, we know that from Assyrian text. We know this is Tiglath-Pileser. But most of your modern English Bibles are not going to say Paul. They're going to say Tiglath-Pileser because that's who we generally know him as in a secular history. This is another image of him. This one is from my hometown. This is in the Detroit Institute of Arts. This is a large Assyrian panel, which is about roughly this high and, uh, I don't know, maybe eight feet long, something like that. Uh, so this is, uh, this is Tig. Uh, this is uh, one of the kings who's not, uh, we don't know who he is, but he's got his face in the dirt, kind of like Jehu did in that other one. And then he's got uh, an officer. What do you think that guy's doing up there with a whisk broom? He's, uh, he's keeping flies off of the royal person. So it's always nice to have a fly guy uh, to uh, protect you from bites and so on. You see the guy that's wielding that? Notice what he doesn't have. He doesn't have a beard. He's clean shaven. In Assyrian art, clean-shaven figures are eunuchs. So they are often military officers or people in the government, but they are usually depicted as clean-shaven, whereas the emperor will always have a full beard. In fact, the emperor's beard is often a false beard, and in some uh, of the reliefs, you can actually see the little string goes up by his ear, you know, kind of like, you see on a COVID-19 mask, I suppose. Um, so in one of the texts that comes from the ANET, Ancient Near Eastern Text, is going to say that uh, uh, he overthrew the Israelite king Pekah. He's going to place Hosea as king over them. And he's going to receive 10 talents of gold and 1,000 talents of silver as the initial tribute uh, for this takeover. Now, as we're talking about Pekah, we need to talk about a chronological problem. The problem is there's not enough years. We know Tiglath-Pileser's reign, 744 to 727. That is pretty firm. Uh, from the Assyrian calendar as it's coordinated with our calendar. We know the exile of Israel is in 722, 721. And if we have Menahem as a vassal to Tiglath-Pileser, we kind of know where he is located and we don't have enough years. So you need 10 years for, for, uh, uh, for Menahem. You need... Uh, two years for Pekahiah, you need 20 years for Pekah, and you need nine years for Hosea. There's not enough years. So most scholars are going to agree with Edwin Teeley, whose chronology I'm following, that probably Pekah was a king in the Transjordan, but not west of the Jordan until late in his career. 
So it's not quite the same as a co-regency. It, it actually is a situation where you've got two claimants to the throne, one in the one side of the river, one in the other, and Pekaw eventually emerges as the successful one out of that. So generally, we, we figure that the 20 years that Pekaw is, is in power, uh, much of that is in a kind of a rival kingship with a king on the west side of the Jordan River. Uh, and that may actually be alluded to in the book of Hosea in a passage. So there's some, there's some real tricky stuff going on in terms of these years and how we're going to assess them. Uh, but Pekah is probably the most problematic of any of the kings of the north in terms of the years of his reign because he's got a fairly long reign and there's just not room for it. Um, so... Uh, here's another artifact that is very interesting. This was discovered uh, a number of years ago uh, by, a, an, is by an archaeologist, and it is a seal ring of Yotam. Uh, and it says uh, in letters in Hebrew, belonging to Yotam, which is this little inscription. Uh, so that's, a, that's a, just another one of these connections that we make with uh, archaeology. So a little bit about Ahaz of Israel. Or, I'm sorry, Ahaz of Judah. Excuse me, Ahaz of Judah. Now we're going back down south. Ahaz is going to revive the fertility cult in Judah. After the execution of Athaliah, Jehoiada has been at least somewhat successful in kind of realigning the southern nation with the ancient covenant. Ahaz, when he comes to power, is going to go the opposite direction. He's going to take him way off into the bulrushes uh, with regard to paganism. He's even going to sacrifice his own son to one of the pagan gods. So when reason of Aram and Pekah of Israel try to force him to join in their face-off with the Assyrian emperor, he submits to Assyrian suzerainty and he gives a large gift stripped from the temple and invites Tiglath-Pileser to be his suzerain, as we mentioned. So the Assyrians are going to attack Damascus and take it. Aram is going to suddenly be erased from the map. Aram is no more. That means that the northern kingdom of Israel is now going to be a vassal of Assyria, and the buffer zones between Judah and Assyria are going to be reduced to just one kingdom, and that's Israel. And they are also in alignment with the Assyrians. So Ahaz is going to come back. He's going to set up a new altar in the temple precincts that is basically after a, an Assyrian design. So he's pulling in elements from Assyria to show that he's loyal to the Assyrians. Uh, and we start running into a few more artifacts. Here, in fact, is a seal impression of Ahaz's signet ring. Uh, the... Impression in here is going to say belonging to Ahaz, the son of Jehotam, or, or, or uh, jo, uh, Jotam. Uh, and one of the interesting things about this seal is that it has a thumbprint on the side that was made when it was soft clay. That's about as close as you can get to a biblical signature, is a thumbprint. Uh, now, this is not a seal. This is a seal impression. That goes by a special name. It's called a bula. A bula, B-U-L-L-A, is a seal impression. 
So we don't have the seal itself, but we have the seal impression. We also have another really interesting uh, text, 86 lines, and this is from the reign of Tiglath-Pileser in Assyria. And it actually lists a number of things that are brought as tribute from Jehoahaz of Judah, consisting of gold, silver, tin, iron, antimony, linen garments, various trimmings, and so on. And the name Ahaz is going to appear in this text. So we have, as I said earlier, we have an increasing number of texts that are starting to crop up in this period of time because of the widespread uh, movement toward literacy. So the North is ultimately going to fall apart. Ahaz makes this invitation to Tiglath-Pileser. That is going to be fatal to Aram and Israel as well. Reason is deposed, Aram is annexed, Pekah is assassinated, and Hoshea is going to be the last king of the northern kingdom. So uh, as it says in ancient Near Eastern texts, the Israelites overthrew their king Pekah, and I, Tiglath-Pileser, placed Hoshea as king over them. Um, if you're in a vassal-suzerain relationship with a powerful king, what are the dynamics that happen when that king dies? He's got to be replaced, and that gives you a window of opportunity, maybe, to break away. They're going to be preoccupied with the transition of power at home. If it's a smooth transition, you don't have much of a window. But if it's a difficult transition, you might have a pretty good window. And when Tiglath-Pileser dies, Hosea, who has been uh, pro-Assyrian for his entire reign, is going to say, aha, I think we can quit paying the bill every year. So he's going to suspend tribute, which is considered to be a rebellion, and he's going to try to establish some independence, and that isn't going to work very well. Uh, he's hoping for support from Egypt. That support never comes. In fact, later Judah is going to be hoping for support from Egypt, and that doesn't come either. Uh, the Egyptians are... They're a weak, a weak link, I guess you might say, uh, but they're not going to be helpful, even though they're appealed to. So Egyptian supports a vain hope. Shalmanes are the fifth now. We're a little bit later from the third. Now we're at the fifth. He's going to invade Samaria. The city is going to fall. Hosea, the last king, is going to be put in jail. And uh, there's a transition of power during the siege. Sargon II uh, is going to assume power and he's going to depart huge amounts of Israelites into Assyria. Um, we actually have also one other little uh, interesting signet, and this is of Hosea's minister or one of his uh, court officials. Uh, this one is not just an impression. This is the actual seal, but it says belonging to Abdi, the servant of Hosea. We don't know anything about Abdi at all, but we certainly know who Hosea is, who is the king, the last king of the northern kingdom. This is actually in a private collection in London. There is a gentleman who um, 
has more money than he knows what to do with, and he buys artifacts when he can get them, and he's got quite a collection that most scholars are aware of, and he keeps it in London. So anyway, this is one of his. There's also an Assyrian prism that commemorates the rule of Sargon II, who is the successor of Shalmaneser V. And this uh, prism says he deports another 27,000 Israelites into the outlying parts of Assyria. And I've given you a little translation of, uh, of, of what it, at least what part of this prism says. I repopulated Samaria, or Samarina as they call it, uh, and brought into it people from countries conquered by my hands. Now, that's pretty much the same kind of story you find in 2 Kings chapter 17, where the Assyrians take over, but they bring in colonists, if you want to call them that, into northern Israel to live there and deport the Israelites somewhere else. Why are they doing that? Well, what's the big deal about deporting people? That's a big job, for one thing. Why do they do that? Pardon? For slavery, uh, yeah, that's probably part of it. And I think also part of it might be that if these people are dislocated from their home, they probably won't get too patriotic because they're not at home. Uh, they're living in a foreign area and they're kind of at a disadvantage. So uh, it might be related to that as well. Um, we do actually have Assyrian texts that show where a lot of these people ended up. Some of them ended up as bakers, cooks, if you will. Some of them ended up as chariot drivers. Some of them en ended up as uh, stonemasons. Um, and what we start finding in Assyrian texts is a combination of Jewish and Assyrian names in the same name, which hasn't happened up until this point. So we have a number of texts from Assyria that have Jewish kind of names in them, uh, which are probably from these deported people. So anyway, this is the fall of the north. Israel, by the way, I'm introducing you to another name for the northern nation Israel because in the prophets, the northern nation Israel is often called Ephraim, which is the most important tribe in the north. It's the most central tribe. Uh, so just like Judah becomes the name of the southern nation, Ephraim becomes the name of the northern nation. So you need to keep that in mind. When you find that in the prophets, you usually are not talking about one tribe. You're using the name of one tribe to apply to the northern nation as a whole. So here's the way it ends. Tribute begins under Jehu to Shalmaneser III. Tribute under Menahem to Tiglath-Pileser III. Uh, early deportation uh, under Pekah by Tiglath-Pileser III. The fall of Samaria under Shalmaneser V and Sargon II, with a deportation of many of the northern Israelites to the outlying areas. What are the odds of you keeping all of these names straight? Pretty bad, right? <laughs> I don't blame you, because they're hard to keep straight. Um, but if you read enough of this stuff, eventually, I, I, I describe it like throwing jello on the wall. You just keep throwing it on the wall, eventually some of it sticks. Um, and you keep working with these names, and eventually they start kind of falling into place. So I'm not giving you a test, so I'm not going to uh, try to make you cough these things up out of your brain somewhere. 
And I don't know whether uh, your leaders are going to do that or not, but they will. Uh, they, it, it's an exercise in humility. What can I say? <laughs> what happened to the northern Israelites that went into Assyria? What do you think might have happened to them? Pardon? Some of them probably ended up in forced labor. In fact, some of them we know did because some of them are actually said to be part of the builders of certain structures in Nineveh, for instance. Um, they didn't all go to the same place. So when you look at the way they're described in 2 Kings 17, they're kind of spread out, which means that they don't have the advantage of remaining in a community. They're kind of isolated families. Yeah, they can become very fragmented and they probably begin to assimilate into Assyrian cultures. Um, yeah, probably. There's a lot of theories about what happened to the northern tribes. Sometimes they are called the lost 10 tribes. Have you heard that expression? Um, I don't know if they were quite as lost as they are sometimes spoken of. Um, we know some of them, uh, some of the remnants fled south to Jerusalem and became refugees during the period of Hezekiah. Uh, we'll talk about that tomorrow. Uh, but nonetheless, they did kind of disappear into the Assyrian Empire. So there's some theories about that. And I thought I'd spend just at least a few minutes talking about some of the theories. The lost 10 tribes, what happened to them? Here's what we know. There's a lot of things we don't know, but this is what we know. We do know that Hebrew-type names begin showing up in Assyrian texts. So the idea of them being deported to different parts of Assyria, that seems to be validated by Assyrian texts, which agree with the basic storyline that you find in 2 Kings 17. We also know that some refugees from Israel fled to Judah and that seems to be described in the genealogical list in First Chronicles. So this is maybe one reason to pay a little more attention to that genealogical list than we usually do. Usually it's, okay, let's go to chapter 10. I think we've already exhausted chapters 1 through 9 in about 12 seconds. Uh, <laughs> but there are actually some things in there that are helpful. Uh, and this is one of them. And furthermore, we find at least one of them in the New Testament. In the Gospel of Luke, there is an old woman who is uh, kind of alongside Simeon in the story of the birth of Jesus. And she comes in uh, at the time that Mary and Joseph are bringing Jesus as a baby to be dedicated. And does anybody remember who she is and where she's from? Faith, if you get this right, I'll buy you dinner tonight. <laughs> well, let's look at this more closely. <laughs> There's an old woman that comes into the temple at the time that Jesus is being dedicated by, his, by Joseph and Mary. And 
she testifies alongside Simeon uh, that Jesus is the Christ. Do you remember what her name is and where she's from? Her name is Anna. Well, you would be the one to remember that, I would suppose. And she is from the tribe of Asher. That is a Galilean tribe in the north, up by the Sea of Galilee, between Galilee and the Mediterranean. So she is, she's a remnant, if you want to call her that, of the so-called Lost Ten Tribes. So they're not all lost. There's a, there's a few here and there that we run into. Uh, but there are some interesting theories about them. How many of you have ever heard of, um, uh, of a, a group called uh, the British Israelites? Okay, you're probably not old enough to remember this personally, but uh, back in the uh, mid to late 1900s, there was a rather large religious group in the United States that was led by a thinker uh, whose name was Herbert W. Armstrong. And he was the head of a group called the Worldwide Church of God. Anybody ever heard of them? Probably not. Well, Mr. Armstrong had embraced what is called British Israelism. And his whole movement was based on British Israelism. And it was the idea that the lost 10 tribes in the north made it to England. And he tried to argue that because the English are called the Brits, the word Brit is like the Hebrew word Berit, which is the Hebrew word for covenant. And the British and their descendants, which were the Americans, are the descendants of the lost 10 tribes of Israel. And therefore, the covenant promises of God to the Israelites are due to the British and the Americans. You reckon that's a wild idea? <laughs> well, it is imaginative. I will give him that. He used to publish a little magazine called The Plain Truth. The plain truth about the plain truth is it wasn't the truth, but, <laughs> but he was convinced. Now, interestingly enough, when uh, old Mr. Armstrong died, the worldwide church of God has been gradually moving more and more toward American evangelicalism, so much so that they've pretty much decided this idea of British Israelism not true and we can't buy this and so why don't we just become ordinary Christians like everybody else uh, so you don't really hear about it much anymore but you used to hear about it a lot in England in the 17 and 1800s which is a popular idea um, have you ever heard these lines from a British poem did those feet in ancient time walk upon England green and did the holy lamb of God have you ever heard those lines it's from um, an English poet by the name of William Blake. And it is basically capturing the idea that those feet in ancient time that walked upon England green were related to Jesus and the lost 10 tribes of Israel. <laughs> uh, they even got it connected with the Holy Grail and Glastonbury. I mean, it was, it was, a, 
It was a, a, a really fascinating uh, scenario. Uh, suffice it to say that there is no living scholar in the world that will agree with this. Not a genuine scholar. There are people that agree with it, but there's not anybody that has above fourth grade intelligence that agrees with this very much. That's pretty insulting. I guess I should take that back. But it's, it's just a really preposterous idea. But it is an idea that's been around for a while. So um, British Israelism, the notion that the Lost Ten Tribes migrated to Britain and America, uh, I think pretty much everybody except maybe a very few diehards that uh, would maybe support this, but most people don't. But this is kind of in the flat earth category of things, you know, that people sometimes fuss about. I, I, met a, I met three flat earthers teaching in a YWAM DBS in New Zealand, in Queenstown. I was just flat. They were talking about and I thought they were kidding. I started laughing. And they were offended. And I said, I'm sorry, is there a problem? We believe in the flat earth theory. I said, oh, well, sorry. Yeah, well, they all had cell phones, which immediately calls into question the entire theory. Um, but anyway, it's an interesting point of view. You say you're not one. You are one? No, 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 no. I was say, surely not. I mean, you look gruesome. Oh, did you, 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 but you didn't run into it? No, I was not with Queenstown. I was with uh, Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, I was so this was in Queenstown. Okay. Because at first I was like, who at my base was? Yeah. No, it wasn't on your base. And I don't know, I don't know necessarily, I, I don't, I mean, there was a pretty big DBS. It was like 50 or so. And I don't remember where they were from. They might have not even been from New Zealand. They might have been somewhere, it might have been from Kansas. I don't know where they were from. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, the British Israelism idea and the flat earth theory are, are kind of one of those minor blips <laughs> that, that happen from time to time. But there are some other ones. There actually is a Russian Israelism concept that, and this one actually a little more plausible, at least than the British Israelism idea. And this is the idea that the Lost Ten Tribes migrated up through the Caucasus and ended up in Russia in Moscow and Tobolsk, and they became part of the Russian, Russian people. I ran into this also in a YWAM <laughs> school in Norway, where I was teaching an SBS, and I had two Russians who were from Tobolsk, and they said they were actually exposed to this idea in the university. I thought, surely not. A university is not going to teach this sort of thing. But apparently, somebody did. Um, uh, but it's the idea that uh, uh, the, the, um, there, there's a couple of, again, it's based on, on questionable linguistics, where they're trying to take a Russian word and link it to the sound of a, of a Hebrew word, uh, which is bad methodology to start with. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that's sort of the way it goes. There's also uh, a Spanish theory that the Lost Ten Tribes became the Ashkenazis in Spain. Uh, the Ashkenazi is one branch of Judaism in Europe, uh, and uh, at least this is the theory that they ended up in Spain. 
And of course, there is the one that is held by the Mormons. The Mormons, the Book of Mormon says that the Lost Ten Tribes came across the Pacific Ocean in uh, canoes, I guess, boats, and became Native Americans. Say what? Well, that's one reason the Mormons have done a lot of archaeology in Utah, Arizona, Wyoming, and some of those states where there's a lot of Mormons, because they're trying to find archaeological evidence to support this idea. They've run into a real problem fairly recently, and that is because of the Genome Project. It is now demonstrable that Native Americans have no direct relationship to Jews. <laughs> so. Um, uh, the Mormon theory is uh, hitting some rocky road here, uh, and I don't know how long they're going to hang on to this or not, but at least that's, that's part of uh, Mormon theology. Uh, so you get some really, really unusual ideas about these lost ten tribes. So I want to go back to what we know. We know they went to Assyria. We know they generally assimilated into Assyrian culture. We know some refugees fled south to Jerusalem, and we have some remnants of them that last through the next several centuries within Judah. That's about the best we can do with any kind of certainty. So this is, uh, this is the map of the ancient Near East and where some of these colonists were brought into northern Israel. They are brought from Kutha'ava. We're not sure exactly where that is. We think that is on the eastern part of Assyria. However, Hamath is much more recognizable. We know where that is. That's up here in central Assyria, not too far from Nineveh and Asher. And uh, there's some other places that are mentioned, and they are brought into northern Israel, and uh, they become kind of uh, colonists to take over northern Israel, and the Israelites themselves are mostly moved out and deported. Then there is the problem of the people of Samaria. The long-standing claim, and this is found in the writings of Flavius Josephus, in the book of Sirach, which is in the intertestamental literature, and the book of 2 Maccabees, which is in the intertestamental literature, all of these are going to say that the Samaritans that you find in the New Testament are descendants of the intermarriage between these Assyrians and Israelites in the north. And most Christians have sort of uh, adopted that as sort of their um, go-to theory on the Samaritans in the New Testament. There is a problem with that, however, in that the Samaritans themselves deny that claim outright. They say, we are not that. We have a chain of descendants that go all the way back to the time of Samuel, and we are an offshoot of Israel and in their viewpoint, the true Israel, as opposed to the Jews. Uh, so you do have some debate between the Samaritans themselves um, uh, that crop up in the, in the, uh, in the New Testament uh, about whether or not they go back this far. In fact, there are some Samaritans that still exist. I don't know if you're aware of that, but there is a little village called Nablus in center Israel near Mount Gerizim, uh, and there is a little community of Samaritans there that still have a priest. They still have a Samaritan Torah or Pentateuch that they read. 
uh, and they still claim to be the nucleus of the true Israel. Um, so they're, they're, they've lasted a long time. Most modern scholars suggest that the Samaritans in the New Testament are probably some kind of an offshoot of Judaism and uh, probably happening uh, uh, one or two centuries before the time of Jesus. Uh, but their, their origins are a little fuzzy anyway, but they do figure into this, uh, this larger set of uh, theories. Uh, so the, the origin of New Testament Samaritans is a little fuzzy, and I know you're not even going to get to that for another two or three weeks at the least, but when you do, just keep in mind that we're not real sure about them. We know they're there, uh, but we, we, and we know there's a lot of animosity between them and the Jews in Jerusalem, but we don't know uh, as much as we wish we did about their origins. All right, <clears throat> let's do a couple questions here. Isaiah describes the Assyrians as Yahweh's war club. Yahweh uses the war club of the Assyrians to discipline the northern Israelites because they have been unfaithful to the covenant. So my question is, do you think God still disciplines his people? Does he use, I don't know, war clubs? <laughs> uh, what do you think? As a, as a living example, a number of years ago, I was teaching in Budapest, and uh, I was invited to preach at a Hungarian Reformed church on the outskirts of Budapest. Actually, it was a little town outside of Budapest. And so um, I agreed. I'd be happy to do that. Uh, and so this was a group of, uh, of uh, Hungarians uh, whose roots went back into the old Soviet Union. In fact, their pastor had been in prison for 12 years uh, in a, in, uh, under the Soviet regime and didn't get released until the breakup of the old Soviet Union. And then he got out of jail and uh, marvel of marvels, his church was still waiting for him. Uh, I thought that was impressive. If that had happened in Michigan, they'd have found a new pastor in six months and said, well, sorry about the old guy, but he's gone now. Um, uh, but they were waiting for him, and he came back. Anyway, he was the pastor there, and uh, we had some interesting conversations. But after, my, after the service in which I preached on a Sunday morning, the pastor asked if I would be willing to do some Q&A. Uh, so sure, yeah, I'm always open for Q&A. I do lots of those with SBSs and stuff, so why not with a Hungarian Reformed Church? The very first question they asked was, do you think 911 was a judgment upon America? How would you answer that question? I was not expecting it. I'll be frank. Um, uh, all of you know what 911 is, of course. I mean, I remember watching the second plane fly into the tower. Uh, my secretary, I was, uh, I was still a pastor at that time. I was in my office, and my secretary said, hey, Pastor Dan, there's something happening in New York. You need to be aware of it. I said, what's that? I said, there's a plane just crashed into the Trade Center. Oh, gee. We're thinking this was some kind of a problem with the airplane's control. At that point, we had no idea this was sabotage or something like that. And they had video going on. And then there's a second plane that crashes into the trade store. That can't hardly be 
an accident, you know, that's too much of a coincidence. And then, of course, eventually we find out what was happening uh, with these guys that hijacked the planes. Uh, but anyway, that was their question to me. Do I, do I think that's a judgment? Uh, so that's, in a way, my question to you, not just about New York, but about God. Does God use disciplines for his people today in any way? And if so, how would they look? What kind of shape might they take? Maya, I figured you might have an opinion. I'm glad you do. Thank you. Okay. A lot of our actions will produce something. Um, yeah. Either um, maybe good, but um, <laughs> maybe not so good. Maybe not so good. Even um, even as we talk about even good people who do good things, they can experience um, sort of like on both ends. They can take the chance. They can experience both. Um, people who um, do bad things, though, they usually produce bad results. Kind of happening right now. Yeah. There are words <laughs> from other people might be good, but in the end, what they what they themselves produce is not going to be good. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when I think about like God disciplining the Israelites back then, I'm like, He didn't choose everyone in the world at the time. He was really focused on the Israelites. Okay. Yeah. And who are in covenant with Him. Yeah. That's something you can't say about Americans. We've never been in covenant with God. <laughs> Not in that sense. And then, like, you look at the surrounding nations around them, like Assyria. Um, yeah. Assyrians, like, they could have been doing pretty evil things. Um, well, they were. <laughs> they were doing they were evil things. evil things, but God wasn't punishing them. And, in fact... Although Isaiah said God would. He would. He would use Assyria as a war club, but then he would use others who discipline Assyria because yeah, of their wickedness. Yeah, because you see that um, God also would use the Israelites even beforehand uh, to try to wipe out the Canaanites. That didn't work. Yeah. Um, God's basically trying to use the Israelites to do good in his world, but in the end they fall in with everyone else. And so it's just, it's just really all, all of sin is basically the result yeah. Of a lot of this. Like our own we're for our own and Ezekiel says that very clearly. Everyone will die for his own sins, uh, not somebody else's, yours. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Recklessness. 
Yeah. So that, that, that raises that. The reason I'm asking this question is because it's a question that sometimes comes up. For instance, uh, not too many years ago, well, for, in, for people your age, probably a lot of years ago, people my age not too long ago, but there was a rather famous uh, or well-known uh, television and radio uh, preacher. Uh, you probably heard his name. Uh, by, his name was Pat Robertson who suggested that a hurricane uh, wiped out an area of the East Coast as a divine judgment because of uh, their support of the gay agenda. Well, I don't support the gay agenda either, but I guess I'm going to have to be pretty careful about judging something like that that happens as though I know this is something God did. Um, uh, I wasn't very impressed with his theory at the time. I'm still not. But you do find this kind of idea coming up from time to time. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I would like, like, probably like you said, I don't know if I'd venture into specifics so much. But, I mean, God specifies them throughout history that he does do this. Like, people do. Like, like, he holds people accountable. Like, he, he yep. obviously judged Israel numerous times with them. Yeah. Yeah, that's in Genesis. Yeah. yeah. And so it's like, okay, so clearly he has a relationship with both people. Yeah. Uh, groups. And so I have no reason to believe that he doesn't have that relationship with them with all people too. Sure. The opening of the book of Amos is basically a series of judgments against non-Israelites for slave trading, war brutalities, or what we would call war crimes, those kinds of things. And God holds those, those countries accountable. He holds those nations accountable for those kinds of atrocities. Uh, but on the other hand, trying to be really specific about stuff in the modern world, saying this happened and I have the inside track on God so I can tell you exactly what God's doing, I, don't, I, think, you ought to be, I think you ought to be pretty cautious about trying to make those kind of conclusions. And sometimes, as Maya said, there are certain actions that have repercussions and they just kind of follow uh, things that happen in the world. But I'm not raising this question to try and create a big theological dilemma as much as trying to get you to think about something that you may run into from time to time with people who ask this sort of question. So what, what do you have in terms of any final takeaways from the story of Israel in the North? Any takeaways from the northern Israelites and their story? Listen to people who will tell you to follow God. Yeah, behave yourself and kill them. <laughs> you behave yourself, it'll go better for you. <laughs> That's probably the big lesson. Yeah. Um, uh, God does hold people accountable. And uh, especially people that are accountable uh, in terms of being in a covenant relationship with him, uh, that would be even more so. This is why in the New Testament, Peter in one of his letters is going to quote or at least allude to a passage in the book of Ezekiel that says judgment begins at the house of God. In other words, those people who are in relationship with God 
in a sense, are the very first ones that need to be most careful because they are in relationship with God and they know what he calls for them to do and to be. Maya. Yeah. Yeah. Good very well be. Uh, Jason. A piece left over. Yeah, what you're saying is very much in alignment with some New Testament passages. Where, for instance, one of Paul's sermons in the book of Acts, he says, God, let the, let the nations go their own way. Uh, in Romans, Paul says, because they did not want to retain God in their knowledge, he gave them over to do those things that were not good. Uh, in other words, uh, if that's the direction they set, He's going to say, if you want to go that way, you can. Um, there, will be, there will be repercussions, but you can go that way. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, has a, um, what I think is an insightful comment about that sort of thing. Everybody knows who Mr. Clive Staples Lewis is, right? All right. He said, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, your will be done. And those to whom God says, all right, have it your way. And essentially, he's talking about what we're talking about. Yeah, God lets them, lets them go. All right, it is uh, now about a quarter, about 15 minutes before six, more or less. Um, let me ask you a question. I'm, this is where I'm going to quit for the King's Lectures today. And I'm in good shape to, uh, to finish up in the next two days what I want to do. Uh, do you want me to do a virtual tour of the Detroit Institute of Arts, which would probably take me 15 minutes? Or do you want to just say, you know, I've had enough. Uh, and I will not be offended at that at all, believe me. Um, so uh, do you have any thoughts on that one way or another? I'm, 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 I hear two voices and I can't understand it. I'm going to say, 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 I'm going
You want to see the virtual tour? I mean, I don't mind, but I, 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 I don't mind letting you out early either. I have been a college professor for 40 years, and I have never yet found a class that found it objectionable to end slightly early. <laughs> All right. All right, we'll check it out. Let's see if I can find it here. One of the problems I sometimes have is when I'm plugged into a system, it doesn't always want to let me go back to my to my uh, uh, documents. So let me see if I can get there. Dan, just, just out of curiosity, on Friday, will you be talking about anything special? I, I have that in my plan, yes. Okay. Um, I usually save that to last because it is non-biblical. Um, and if I don't get to it at all, it's absolutely fine. But uh, I do have that in my plan. Okay, let me see. No, I need to go back here to... Uh, this is what I want. Uh, let's see here. All right, here we go. I did come up with it. This is a lecture I gave, uh, a lecture I gave in the Detroit Institute of Arts about their artifacts that are connected with the Bible. Um, so uh, the Detroit Institute of Arts, one of the larger art museums in America, I think it's around number four five or six, something like that, behind the New York Met, Chicago, and uh, I don't know, two or three others, Philadelphia, I think. Uh, but in any case, it has a good, uh, a good, it's modest, but it's a good little Near Eastern section. But I want to say a little bit about archaeology in general first. Uh, the first reality of archaeology is that excavation is destruction. When you dig up something, you, it's like all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put it back together. So once it's dug up, it's, it's destroyed. So you need to keep really good records of what's happening as you're doing the excavation. Today, all excavations are done in uh, little five-meter squares called balks, and they intentionally do not excavate everything that they know is under there because they want to leave part of this for later archaeologists who probably have better technologies and maybe uh, more knowledge. And so th there's rarely now, at least, is, uh, are there full excavations. There are partial excavations. Uh, but this is the kind of thing you run into. You run into layers. Uh, you can see the layers, the strata, if you will, in this uh, excavation. Uh, and uh, that helps us with dating, but there's also tricky things that happen. For instance, you see this dark bulge below this layer. That dark bulge, you got to be careful dating that because that is probably a fire pit, and it probably does not come from this layer, but from this layer. Okay, you've, you understand the theory behind some of that. Uh, the archaeologists have tagged some of the layers here uh, as they're trying to identify them. Uh, they, this is one of those five-meter bulks. This is a, 
This is somebody working and they actually have a line and a plumb line and they excavate them very precisely because they want to do measurements off of the walls of the excavation. That's the reason they're so precise. They want to know that such and such a thing is two meters and 10 centimeters long or whatever it is. Um, so they're, they're maintaining a very careful excavation here. Uh, this is an archaeologist with some of her team who's working, uh, and you can see she has a plumb line as well, so she can take accurate measurements as they are digging on this tell. Uh, here's an archaeologist who's excavating uh, a man with a very large grin. He must have died happy. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's a bad joke, but <clears throat> uh, anyway... Uh, once you get to artifacts like this, you are using very tiny brushes, like almost like a toothbrush or a makeup brush, dental picks. I mean, very small tools because you don't want to injure the artifact in any way. And some of these artifacts are very fragile. Uh, they've been around for two or three thousand years, so they're 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 pretty uh, pretty vulnerable. Uh, so, in any case, uh, generally the artifacts from the past fall into some kind of context. One is a literary context if it is literature. Another would be historical context if it's some kind of a material object, like a pot or a weapon or a tool. And then, of course, there is a cultural context that fits the artifact into a people group, a part of the world, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so in the DIA, we have different kinds of artifacts in our ancient Near Eastern section. Uh, we have some ancient texts, uh, so we want to know what the context is for those texts. We have some ancient objects like this little silver plate. We want to know something about its cultural context. We may have a, an image like this particular face of Augustus Caesar. Uh, and so we want to know something about his historical period. So there are three galleries in the Detroit Institute of Arts that feature artifacts uh, that are especially relevant for the Bible. And these are the Egyptian uh, 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 gallery. Uh, uh, we also have an ancient Middle Eastern gallery, which is what I usually call the ancient Near East, but same, same kind of area. And then we have one called Greco-Roman, uh, which is uh, one floor up. So I want to show you some artifacts from these three areas. Going back to the period of the patriarchs with the development of writing, these are very early cuneiform texts, which begin in about 3400 BC. That's when human writing approximately began. So we move from the prehistoric to the historic period. Um, uh, these little cuneiform texts, and I've shown you a number of, of inscriptions that have been in cuneiform, but these little wedgy-looking shapes, originally made in clay, are what, uh, uh, what we would call uh, graphemes. So they're not quite alphabetic. Uh, they're more phonetic. But in ancient cuneiform, there are more than a thousand of these little things. So learning an ancient language like this is, is quite a task. Uh, it was a huge step forward when we got this more than a thousand graphemes reduced into an alphabet of 22 letters. That really 
makes things more accessible. If you learn the 22 letters, you can work with the language. That's a lot easier than learning a thousand graphemes. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is kind of a close-up of, of one of these. This is from about 2000 BC. Uh, but what is important in cuneiform texts is we find a number of biblical names, which we've already talked about. Amri, Ahab, Jehu, Menahem, Pekah, Hoshea, Hezekiah, Manasseh, all of these names in the Bible appear in cuneiform texts just like this one. Okay? Now, we also find scribes. This begins, at least for the Israelites, in the kingship of David, who has on his staff, if you want to call it that, a scribe. Uh, and they are basically recorders. At this point, there's not widespread literacy, but within the king's cabinet, if you want to call it that, uh, they need to keep some records. And this is, the, is a carving of an ancient scribe. This is a Ramesside ruler, uh, very possibly Ramses II, but we're not absolutely sure because there's no name attached to it and no cartouche. Uh, but it is a new kingdom uh, pharaoh, and the new kingdom pharaohs are the ones that were in power when the Israelites came out of Egypt in the Exodus. Uh, so uh, this would be the pharaoh who did not know Joseph. Prior to the New Kingdom, Egypt is ruled by a group called the Hyksos, which is a, an ancient word that means foreigner. They basically weren't Egyptians. They were Canaanites. Uh, but they took over Egypt, and they were in power in Egypt for more than a century. But eventually, the Egyptians reasserted themselves and began what is called the New Kingdom. And this would correspond to what the book of Exodus says, there arose a pharaoh who did not know Joseph. The Hyksos would have been favorable to Joseph because Joseph is a Semitic and the Hyksos are Semitics. The Egyptians are not Semitics. So uh, they're going to rise. Uh, this is a wooden coffin similar to the one that you find here in Richmond in the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. But this is the kind of coffin that Joseph was interred in. Uh, and it is kind of interesting that the word for this coffin in Hebrew is the word for ark, the same as the ark that was used by Noah, for instance. Uh, it's just a, kind of an odd, odd factor. These are canopic jars. Oh, by the way, there's two canopic jars in the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts also. Uh, you know what a canopic jar is? Okay, yeah. Uh, when you embalm somebody, you take out the organs, and each of these little four jars is going to get a, uh, either a stomach or a liver or something like that. Uh, and, of course, all the insides are removed without cutting open the body. That means your brain comes out your nose, and you can figure out where the other parts come out, but they don't cut the body open. But they do remove the pieces, and they end up in these jars. Okay, uh, we don't know whether this happened or not to any people from the family of Abraham, but we do know that two were embalmed, and that is Jacob and Joseph. So if they were embalmed in the usual way, then they would have had canopic jars with um, their internal organs in them, okay? Um, this is a book of the dead, which is the Egyptian uh, travel guide to the underworld. 
Uh, you need to know this stuff so you can get along in the afterlife, so to speak. The Bible does not have a book of the dead, but the Bible does have a book of life, which is kind of the opposite of the book of the dead. Uh, and the book of life is mentioned in quite a number of passages, beginning in the Old Testament and going all the way to the New Testament. These are cylinder seals. Um, a cylinder seal is uh, in a cylinder shape with a hole bored through it. So you can put it on a, uh, you know, a leather strap or something around your neck or a cord around your neck. And you roll it in soft clay to make the image. So the cylinder seal is carved with a reverse image. When you roll it out, it looks like this. This is the seal impression. The early ones generally had pictures like this or, or images on them. As you get later in history, they start coming up with actual words in the cylinder seals. There's a very famous story in the book of Genesis about someone who was accused of adultery, sentenced to death. And she said, well, if you want to know who the father is, I have his cylinder seal. And she rolls it out and it says Judah. And Judah was the one who sentenced her to death. He said, oh, well, well, okay, let's go on then. Uh, well, uh, he uh, realizes that he is as the uh, Western novels say, caught dead to rights. <laughs> uh, this is a, an oil lamp. This is an early oil lamp. Uh, they're formed uh, out of clay, and then they're pinched, sometimes just once, sometimes two or three times, but in these pinches, you would have a wick. You put a thin layer of water in the bottom of the oil lamp, then you put a layer of oil, and then the wick goes down into the oil. The, the water is, is intended to seal so the, because oil will just kind of keep seeping through the clay. Uh, so you have this layer of water, then you have a layer of oil, and then you have the wicks. Uh, and uh, those are used throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, you find a number of references to them in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament you find uh, a church service going on in the book of Acts in which Luke says there were many lamps burning. So it's a night service. You don't have an overhead fluorescent light, but you got a whole bunch of these little lamps, and those are the ones that are being used. In the tribal period, here's a bronze sword. This is the sword that Ehud used to stab Eglon to death with. Um, uh, it's in the Bronze Age, so this is not iron. This is bronze. Um, you have another one of these little figurines that I've showed you already. Uh, these are Asherah or Astart figurines uh, for the fertility cult. Uh, you have a javelin head. This would be the type of spear end that was used by Saul when he tried to murder David. Uh, so this is a, a pretty lethal looking weapon here. Here you have a magical bird man. This is a Syrian, but it's part of these composite creatures. Well, he does look kind of like a character out of the circus or something, doesn't he? Um, he's got the body of a bird, but he has the legs of an eagle, eagle claws, and the face of a man with hands. 
This is very typical of that kind of iconography, where they bring these disparate elements together to talk about speed, power, intelligence, and that sort of thing. Uh, so you find a lot of that in places like the book of Daniel, where Daniel describes these creatures with all of these different kinds of uh, uh, aspects and so on. Here is an Assyrian protective figure. Uh, this one uh, is, uh, oh, it's about maybe this high, something like that. Uh, you have a figure of a human, but the head of an eagle, eagle wings, but then he has a cone that he's dipping into this bucket. What you can see here are just some leaves that are part of another panel that would be the date palm. And one of the rituals that Assyrians performed regularly was to, uh, on the annual New Year's festival, was to symbolically fertilize the date palm. So there was a lot of fertility involved in Assyrian religion, just like in Canaanite religion. One of the reasons I find this fascinating is because Ezekiel, when you get to his book, he's going to see depictions of Assyrian figures that have been brought into the temple in Jerusalem. And it would be a figure probably somewhat similar to this. This is the dragon of Marduk. This is from Nebuchadnezzar's uh, Ishtar Gate. Uh, uh, if you look on this, you can see it's a composite figure again. It has a tail kind of like a snake. The back legs are eagle's wings. The front legs are lion paws. The body is full of scales. The head has ram's horn and a snake kind of head with a double tongue. Uh, again, these are part of this iconography where they bring all of these kind of elements together. Uh, this is a symbol of Marduk. Uh, which uh, has a different name in your Bible. Usually in the Bible, Marduk is going to be called Bel. So when you get to the book of Isaiah, you're going to find some references to Bel. Uh, or if you read the intertestamental additions to Daniel, there's a story called Bel and the Dragon. And this is the dragon, um, if you want to read that sometime. Uh, this is, I just showed you this one a little bit ago. This is uh, Tiglath-Pileser III, so uh, we looked at that uh, briefly. This is an Assyrian ceremonial belt uh, in which uh, you have figures that are fertilizing the date palm. And you have this winged sun disk in the middle as well. Uh, this is an Assyrian helmet. So you have an idea of what the Assyrians are wearing as they're coming into battle. Um, King Uzziah outfits his soldiers with helmets similar to this. You find a reference to that in 2 Chronicles. Um, uh, just a little bit from the exile very quickly. This is Persian from roughly the time of Nehemiah. Uh, this is uh, another Persian one. They're bringing uh, uh, tribute to the Persian emperor, to Darius. Uh, and uh, once again, a tribute bearer. Uh, and a court official uh, in the Persian Empire. So I won't say much about them. Uh, but I do want to mention the silver plate. Uh, you may remember that Nehemiah is a uh, taster for the king. Okay, uh, why do they have a taster? Because the one way you can get to the king is by poison. Uh, he's going to be pretty well protected for somebody coming in with a sword. But food... If you can sneak something in the food, uh, so you have a taster. He eats a little bit of everything, and as long as he doesn't swoon, 
uh, the king is good to go. Uh, so Nehemiah uses a, a plate very probably similar to this. This is a Persian plate from roughly the time of Nehemiah uh, that would be used in the king's court. This is a derrick. This is a, a very early coin. And when you get to the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you will find that the Israelites bring back with them from Persia a bunch of golden derricks. This is a golden derrick. It looks huge there. It's about the size of a quarter. So it's not very big, but uh, that, that's it. All right, well, it is, uh, it is 6 o'clock, and I need to quit. I, I have an image of Augustus and one of Nero and a Corinthian hoplite helmet and an early uh, lamp from the period of Jesus and the symbols of the four Gospels that you find in old churches, but um, I won't say anything about those. I'll just show you briefly. So... Those are, those are uh, artifacts from the Detroit Institute of Arts.